0: In John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that in order to enter the kingdom of God, one must be born of water and of the Spirit. Later in the book of Acts, we read about Christians being baptized and receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the Spirit is a theological topic that many believers are either unaware of or unclear on. Depending on your church background, the topic might also be accompanied with baggage from bad teaching. My guest on today's show is here to help us to understand uh, this topic and have clarity on this conversation. His name is Joe Miller, and we discussed his latest book, One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism a Spirit Baptism in Christian Unity. Joe Miller is Assistant Professor of Christian Worldview and Worldview Lead at Grand Canyon University. Dr. Miller co-founded the Center for Cultural Apologetics and serves on the Academic Advisory Council for the Center for Biblical Unity. He is also an avid podcaster and blogger at Joe Join his wife, Suzanne, enjoy life with their three sons in Phoenix, Arizona. Before we jump into this conversation, let me encourage you if you haven't already to subscribe to our email list so that you can get an email in your inbox every time we drop a new episode or at least some other great content here. Also, if you enjoy filter, if you've been helped by this episode or any of our other content, it would greatly help us out if you left us a rating and review or shared this show with your friends. Leave Filter a five star rating on Spotify and write us a review on Apple Podcast. Whenever you take these simple steps, it really helps us out to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Also, while you're there, make sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. Well, without any further delay, let us jump into this great conversation that I got to have with Joe Miller. Joe, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, well, glad you made the time. We're recording here. This is going to come out in a few weeks. We're recording here right in between Christmas and New Year's. And so we've both, uh, had all kinds of family things going on and we're recording in, in the middle of all that. So hopefully we'll be able to be focused and engaged in the midst of the distractions of the holidays, the extra calories affecting our minds yeah. and so <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah,
1: but, it's not uh, right yeah, after really Turkey, so we're not sleepy, right? So we're all right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But, uh, yeah, glad we're able to make it happen and. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Why don't we start by just telling us a little bit about your background. I read your professional bio, but tell us about your background, where you're from, and uh, how you became a Christian.
1: Yeah, so I've got a fairly eclectic background in terms of where I've lived and even education and all those sort of things. Uh, I was born and raised in Pennsylvania, raised in a Christian home uh, in the United Methodist background. And uh, came to know the Lord when I was 13 at a Christian camp. And uh, then I ended up uh, going to Penn State University, did my undergrad engineering, and uh, got involved with campus ministries there. I ended up feeling the Lord call to ministry. So mm-hmm. I ended up at Oral Roberts University to do my MDiv. So make the big move from PA to Oklahoma, uh, finish time there, get uh, called by a church that's up near Seattle and uh, Puyallup, Washington, which was Christian Missionary Alliance Church, uh, and so was ordained there, uh, ended up doing a lot of other education through Biola University, oh. and then also... Um, uh midwestern baptist theological seminary ended up planting a couple baptist churches along the way one in washington state then we moved to san diego planted a baptist church there first baptist churches i'd ever been in my whole life and um and then uh got involved teaching down in san diego as well uh was teaching at a seminary there uh, near uh, in el cajon uh, called southern california seminary and then just recently move with the family. We're here in Glendale, Arizona, teaching uh, full-time at Grand Canyon University. So, kind of lived all over the place, got the eclectic, yeah. uh, muddish theological church background, and mm-hmm. uh, along the way, got a wife and three sons. So, and a yeah. pup. Yeah.
0: Yeah, beautiful pup. For those of y'all who are listening, uh, on audio, you're missing out. He's got a, a beautiful miniature mix of a little mini doodle. doodle yeah yeah mini doodle uh makes a golden doodle beautiful dog um yeah very cool you you, you definitely have a uh, you, you have a healthy mix of a theological background there with the different denominations and schools uh that's interesting i didn't know that you had uh planted some churches
1: yeah, yeah. So yeah. You, I know you you're busy with the pastor thing. That's why I'm sympathetic to how busy you are, brother.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, so we were you were you the lead planner on those teams, or yeah, uh, or, yeah, yeah? And, so
1: on the two okay. that I did, I was sort of the lead. But we we did a plurality of elder. We have an elder plurality model in both cases. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I was sort of the when I was. Accepted by North American Mission Board, NAM, as sort of a supported missionary for both of those. So, mm-hmm. in that sense, I was the lead. But on ground, I had a shared leadership model that we did. So, yeah. Related, by the way, to a book I did in 2017 called Elders Lead a Healthy Family. Not related to this interview, but yeah, that's okay. where a lot of that was born out of as well.
0: Okay, very cool. Yeah. So, I don't think I mentioned before that uh, I'm a church planner. And so, yeah. Uh, and through that oh yeah, species, I didn't realize it was I'm, a plant. Uh,
1: I know you mentioned you were a church, you were a pastor. I didn't realize it was a plant, yeah. though. That's cool.
0: Yeah, well, we're uh, eight years old now, um, mm. and so uh, I don't know at what point you stopped calling yourself a plant. So I didn't figure that out. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, so I'm, I'm a church yeah. planner too. I led a team. We got started in 2014, and uh, we have a plurality of elders as well. Uh, we oh, were nice. supported by Nam uh, and a couple other. Baptist entities. So, uh, so yeah, a lot of overlap in our stories there. Uh, we, we could do another podcast episode talking about church planning and all of that. Yeah. All that fun. <laughs> I'll
1: have to get, but, you, uh, get you a copy of my book and we'll have to chat about that too. Cause I love, I'm passionate about that topic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then, um, and then what led you to teaching away from church planning and the other types of ministries you were doing to teaching?
1: Yeah, I don't know, man. I the, I I don't know that I ever imagined that I would be teaching or a professor in that gig uh years ago. I you know when I was called the Pastoral Ministry. So I spent 20 some years doing that. And, uh, you know, along the way, I just felt like, oh, I'm not equipped for this. I'm not equipped for that. And so I do the educational because I, I enjoy reading and studying and learning. And eventually you collect enough degrees. Uh, and then you say, what am I good for? So I can become a teacher, you know. So I don't know. I just sort of had, yeah. ended up having a passion for that. Just discovered it along the way, I guess, in a sense. I mean, I've always enjoyed teaching in that sense. But yeah, the, doing it in a context of a university. Uh, I think is really key, and uh, you know I I love where I'm at at Grand Canyon because I teach a course called Christian Worldview it's a required course of every freshman that comes through here. And it ends up being just a giant mission field. Cause I have 300 students in a, in a given semester and I'll have students that I identify as pantheists or Wiccan or Christian, even though the university yeah. itself is Christian and they have to take this, I have a very diverse student body. So yeah. it's kind of like that pastoral heart for mission and reaching the lost it, it's to yeah. this next generation I get to do in teaching. So I I, I just enjoy it cause it kind of fulfills both that pastoral and, uh, academic kind of you know things in my mind so it just i guess yeah. the lord just had it all planned but i never knew it
0: yeah that's awesome tell us about grand canyon uh is, is that a newer school um or is it or are they just have they been around yeah. just really fastly growing in the last several years yeah i feel like i never heard of them and then all of a sudden it's like, yeah look look at this well you that's
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, and so in two thousand and eight, Grand Canyon University um, was under a thousand students uh, on campus here in Arizona, and Mm -hmm. a new president took over. They took a distinctively Christian turn uh, that you know emphasized their you know the sort of Christian. Educational model that they wanted to incorporate, and so from 2008 till now, they've grown. Now they're on campus. We have about 25,000 students and about 90,000 online. Wow. So, for example, the the Christian Worldview 101 course that I, I teach and I'm the on the on ground lead for for developing the curriculum and doing all that kind of going forward. But we have about 10,000 students a year who take that class alone. So, um, and they're very. Uh, dedicated to the Christian vision and mission. And so it's uh, in in the educational model. So it's a pretty wow. exciting uh, place to be. Wow. Yeah, that is incredible. Yeah. And so. Yeah, and I'd um, say, too, by just, you know, just by the way, if parents are thinking about, you know, there's a lot of seminaries and even, you know, Christian universities that are really. Um, Compromised in some of the things that they're willing to teach about the traditional faith and practice of the Christian uh, of Christianity, and Mm -hmm. I've been really impressed so far with the folks here and the College of Theology are just really solid. Very different, very different people from different backgrounds, and not all I agree with about everything, but still Mm -hmm. very solidly committed to the truth of Scripture, which I find refreshing because coming out of California, most recently, uh, I'd given up hope on all. Uh, Christian institutions, so (laughs) some hope restored.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's great to hear. Um, And that's a blessing to be able to (laughs) give a hearty endorsement to the institution that you're teaching for, because I have friends who uh, I know they can't do the same. and That's a hard position to be in. Uh, That's awesome. I'm going to link to Grand Canyon University in the show notes, so if any of you guys are listening and you're interested for yourself, for your children, nieces, and nephews, you can go check it out. So go in the show notes and you can Check out Grand Canyon University. Uh, So you mentioned you teach Christian worldview. What else do you teach over there?
1: So that's my primary course is Christian Worldview. We have a 101 version of it. We have a Christian Worldview 316, which is sort of how do we walk in the way of Jesus and sort of like a spiritual formation kind of class for the undergrad students. So those are the main courses I teach and that I'm involved in developing for. Although I'm really open this summer. I'm off on summers because it's only a nine-month contract. Uh, But, you know, I might pick up a course. I want to teach the Philosophy 101, which is Introduction to Ethics or Introduction to Philosophy. Philosophy and ethics, which is kind of my background in ethics as well. So I might get a chance to sneak in a few other courses as time goes on, but right now, mostly just focused on those courses.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So, primarily, what we're talking about today is your latest book, which is called One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism, Spirit Baptism, and Christian Unity. Before we get into the specific position or argument that you're putting forward in the book, um just explain to us detail of the theological conversation generally mm. that you are stepping into and addressing with this book
1: yeah so I can go back to my undergrad days at Penn State when I was a campus leader, and I had people, I had uh, guys that I was discipling from all kinds of backgrounds. And I back then, I was, you know, I was a Christian in the midst of a very secular place, and I couldn't have told you the difference between a Baptist and a Pentecostal and a Reformed or Arminian person. I knew none of that stuff. I was just sort of like, well, here's a Christian in the midst of a very secular world, and so I, I had all these guys that were discipling and say, hey, what about Spirit baptism? Is this something that happens when we are saved or is this something that happens later and i'm like i don't know let's study that so i did like some small studies on it but even then i'll, I'll tell you when i when i left uh to that call of ministry i mentioned before i was going to go to dallas seminary i didn't even know what a seminary was to be honest i'd never heard of the word but i knew that's where you wanted to be if you wanted to be a pastor so i was i actually on a bus down there um And then I just stopped in Oklahoma where my sister was living and I said, hey, I can go to this place called Oral Roberts University, which was obviously very different than Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, But I just I can sleep on our couch and I can get a job and I know somebody in town. I knew nobody in Dallas. So that's the only reason I ended up there. But as I started to get into these conversations about what does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Is this something that accompanies salvation? Is this something that only comes later does it have to be accompanied by a miraculous gifting like speaking in tongues or prophecy those were the sort of conversations i started to have and then i started to realize you know christians really disagree on this issue but not only that it it's, it can be fairly divisive and so in that conversation that started from my undergrad years as an engineering student into my years as a divinity student at Oral Roberts University, I started to see the need for this, and so I started writing this book over years and years of just lots of conversations and lots of conflicts—not uh, necessarily my own, but just conflicts that people had with the text or with other Christians—and you know, just how do I how do I understand this uh, this idea of Spirit baptism?
0: Yeah yeah it is a, uh, a a deeper conversation and um, debate that's had, particularly between different denominations, even. Uh, and so, what is baptism in the Holy Spirit? <laughs>
1: So I take in the in the book the position, uh, and I would advocate for that the Spirit baptism is uh, what Paul it's the gift of God. You know, Paul in Corinthians talks about that we receive the the gift of the Spirit, the gift that brings us into unity with the Person of Jesus Christ. So that through the Spirit we are baptized, that we are immersed into the death of of Christ on the cross and and raised up into the newness of life. The formulaic kind of expression. As in Romans uh, six as well, so I I would I argue that Spirit baptism in the Scripture is that immersion into the death and life of Christ that brings us into uh, restored relationship into salvation with God, and so that's the position that I I take and defend in the book.
0: Hmm. So I know that in uh, more charismatic denominations and uh, Pentecostal ones, they argue that. you have to have two baptisms, one by water and then one in the spirit, which is usually what they mean by that is an accompaniment of um, some charismatic gifts, yeah. you most often being speaking in tongues uh, or something along those lines. So mm-hmm. is your definition that you're putting forward different from theirs? And if it is, why why is yours different? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so when I was at ORU uh, and studied under, you know, really some of the most leading Pentecostal charismatic scholars, at least at the time when I was there, uh, you know, the folks that had Guys that had written books on these topics, um, really started to dig into that understanding and realized that, uh, yeah, they did advocate for there's a there's a moment of salvation in Christ where somehow the Spirit like maybe comes upon people or does something, but it's only at this later post conversion. Uh, moment, a uh, sometime after it could be years later, it could be you know hours later, uh, some period. The Holy Spirit baptizes Christians. They say with power. Essentially, it's the power to evangelize, the power to ministry. And they look at a book like Acts chapter two, where the apostles received and they were you know sort of empowered by the Spirit. And because you see there where they spoke in these other tongues, they say, okay, this is the experience. Uh, that must accompany this second work of grace of the Holy Spirit, who gives us power to fulfill the mission of Christ. So before that, salvation alone essentially doesn't give us the power to fulfill the mission of Christ. We need this second work to give us that power or uh, love for God or love for the Bible or love for truth that doesn't come with salvation in Christ alone. And that was the the crux of the difference of the, the conflict between Uh, The position that I I would say I think uh, the the position I defend in the book versus what has grown up to be the sort of Pentecostal charismatic second uh, post-conversion experience
0: yeah what is your argument against the charismatic position or how do you defend yours against it?
1: yeah so I, I take Two different approaches to that. First, uh, by looking at the history of that. So the first half of the book really unpacks a lot of the history of, okay, when did this theology of a second work of grace, distinct from salvation, really come into being? So I trace that back uh, through a lot of uh, different uh, movements and uh, theologians through that, primarily the, the 18th, 19th, early 20th century. And so uh, I kind of look at that and say, okay, is this position that the, the, the modern Pentecostal Charismatic have, is it historical? And so I look at that history for that purpose. And I say, well, look, it's really a, a very modern convention, the idea of segregating the work of the Spirit from the work of Christ into two distinct things. And so I kind of show that historically it just doesn't seem to have much credibility. And then the second half, I look at the biblical uh, passages, you know, primarily Acts 2, 8, 9, 10, and 19, but a lot of the other supporting passages in Paul, Old Testament uh, prophecies like from Joel regarding uh, the the promise of the Father, spirit baptism. Um, And then say... do these, does the scripture teach this sort of idea of a second work? And so, uh, looking at both of those things, both history and the biblical record, uh, is where I came down to in my own life after a lot of years, just realizing that, okay, this is just the, the, what the scripture teaches about the, the experience of the spirit uh, uniting us to Christ is not a uh, menace, some second post conversion experience. And the, that's how I defend it through those two sides, though. Yeah.
0: What do you think is the importance of really grasping the Holy Spirit's work in our salvation and uniting us, binding us to Christ, as you were saying? Because I think that often in non-Pentecostal traditions, uh, we very often talk about salvation and make no mention of the Holy Spirit Uh, coming to Christ and being saved, uh, becoming a Christian. And usually the Holy Spirit is not in that conversation at all or just later. Like, yeah. oh, yeah, and here's a bonus. <laughs> you know.
1: Um,
0: yeah. So what do you think is, what's the importance of us um, understanding this? And, you know, do you think that many non-Pentecostals uh, really understand that importance?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question because— w- You know, it kind of goes back to my sort of muddish denominational background, you know, being connected with some Baptists and, you know, Wesleyan tradition through the United Methodists and Christian Missionary Alliance. You know, it's funny because when I encountered the Baptists, there really is almost sort of this... Hush, hush kind of thing like don't talk about the holy spirit almost attitude like you know it's just the holy spirit never gets discussed in the salvation process uh, in the work of of ministry and life just sort of like there's a almost um, silence theologically about the work of the spirit and so i think the beauty of the, the Pentecostal charismatic movement was in that it did bring to the foreground the importance theologically of the Holy Spirit and, and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of not just collectively the church, but also the individual believers. And I think historically that's always been there. It's just I think we have movements today that sort of because we're afraid of controversial things, we kind of uh, ignore topics that may lead to you know, people to be upset or frustrated with us. So I don't know. It's just weird that that's there. But that's that's one thing. So emphasizing the spirit, I think, is the counter to a lot of let's just say a lot of the Baptist theology that tends to underplay or almost ignore the work of the Spirit. On the side of the Charismatics, this and Pentecostal, this is a really important because, as I outline in the book, there's a lot of divisiveness that came denominationally uh, through this idea that the work of the spirit somehow creates is it somehow creates a distinction between Christians who are saved versus Christians who are saved plus. Right? This mm-hmm. there becomes a first class and second class Christians. And you see this a lot in the writings. I, I don't think a lot of people today, even in the Paracostal Charismatic, really uh, embrace some of this tradition. I think they've moved away from some of this, in a, for, and I'm glad they have. But but there's still this sense, even today, uh, you can see it in the writings of old, like guys like Smith Wigglesworth. I talk about in the text. He talks about like how literally, you know, hey, when you come to salvation, you're like a you're like a tree that's not being watered. You're like a a tree that's almost dying. It's it doesn't have vitality. It doesn't have life. And so only when you have this second post conversion experience can you truly love God? Can you truly love the Word? Can you truly accomplish anything for God? And it almost makes salvation in Christ this Sort of like dead thing that, well, oh, it happened to me, but nothing really changes. Only when you did have this other experience. And again, that creates these, these two classes of Christians that is very problematic and disconcerting because it creates this divide between believers, which is the opposite of what Paul is reinforcing in his discussions of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians.
0: Yeah. I know that in some Pentecostal traditions, they also have a very different view of the Trinity than what we'd call you know, the historic orthodox position. Do you think that these different views of the Mm -hmm. Trinity affect this different view of, like, salvation plus, if we can put it, like you said before?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I don't think that there's a logical connection between those two things—the Holy Spirit and the Trinitarian concept. Um, so, they're basically when you get into the er, the early 20th century, you have three divisions of the of the Pentecostal sort of idea of the, you know what what is Pentecost right? This Pentecostal label gets applied to three different groups within that. One of those groups was oneness Pentecostals that you're bringing up that they rejected. The Trinity. And so they did believe to a, a, a multi stage approach, like there's first salvation, later baptism. And they had their own sort of, I guess, modalistic, if you want to use that word, approach to it because of how they view God uh, not as a Trinity. Um, so yeah, you had some different formulations of it based on their view of the Trinity, but there's nothing within Pentecostalism itself or within this idea of a of a two stages or, you know, salvation plus kind of model that would lead to a oneness Pentecostal thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering more the, the other way around, if it was the the oneness oh. theology that would lead to the, the salvation uh, plus yeah. position.
1: No, I don't. I you know I, I don't rec- I haven't read anything that would imply that the oneness thing preceded that because in the history uh, of all of those folks that I had looked at uh, that were sort of predate modern Pentecostalism uh, as we would know like say in the Assemblies of God which didn't get formed till like 1916. Um, mm-hmm. You had a lot of movements, but oneness wasn't one of those formative theologies in the theology of spirit baptism as a second work distinct from salvation. So that wasn't any of the anything within the formative groups, at least not uh, significantly, that I would say it, it was a – I have no awareness that it would be a significant precursor to it.
0: Yeah, yeah, super interesting. Um, my in-laws, there's a whole – Section of my uh, of the family on my in my in law side that are apostolic Pentecostals, and uh, at Christmas this last weekend, uh, one of the guys was there with a hat from their church, and I noticed on the back of the hat was written uh, "Our God is One," and uh, Mm. and so you know that that oneness theology was fresh in my mind after noticing that, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's certainly, um, now I might get the name wrong here because it's been a few years since i thought about this, but surprisingly, I mean, there there's still a dominant, uh, well, I wouldn't say dominant, there's still a significant influence of oneness Pentecostalism today. Uh, the the Pentecostal preacher, uh, is it uh, J.D., uh, what's his name out of Texas? Boy, it's been a few years since I've heard of him. Uh, there was a big, uh, big church down in uh, Texas that was a oneness Pentecostal. Um, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name right now. But you know, a large ten thousand member church, uh, mm-hmm. so they're still around. They're still influential. It's just, yeah. it's not talked about as much significantly. I don't know why. Um, it should be. It's an important yeah. issue. Yes,
0: yeah, so one of the primary driving uh, forces in your book is is the importance of baptism in the Spirit for Christian unity. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, what points do we need to agree, agree on in terms of baptism in the Spirit? In order to have unity.
1: Yeah. So this is this is actually an important precursor, and this is one of these issues where my study of this over the years has really sort of uh, kind of attuned to my ears, gives a little red flags when we talk about the word unity and what that means. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that I don't think that we have to have any. A uh, particular doctrinal agreement between you and I on this on this issue to be to, um, for unity to take place. Now, here's what I mean by that. Paul in First Corinthians 12 says that look, we are all one body, many parts, one body. You've received the gift. Of the holy spirit therefore you have these little giftings in 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 the greek i I prefer to translate that the giftings of the spirit so the manifestations right so there's one gift many giftings one gift many manifestations so that all of this is for these manifestations are for the building up of unity of the body in other words even the gift the manifestations of the spirit don't create unity. What they do is they maintain the unity that's guaranteed by the presence, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who unites us to the person of Jesus Christ. And I think this applies theologically as well. So in other words, you you and I might disagree theologically. And and I'm not saying that that's not important that we disagree. Mm. I mean, there's, depending on core issues or secondary issues or how we want to, you know, like, should men wear hats in church okay let's say okay that's a definitely a not core to salvation uh and i think the baptism of the spirit clo- comes closer to the the essence of of our of our confession of faith but we don't have to have agreement on that um, in other words to create that doesn't create unity unity is created by the work of christ, of the spirit alone uniting us to christ where theology comes in is: do does our theology undermine or does it uh, reinforce that unity given to us as a gift from God? So unity is not something we create or that, that 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 happens because of theological agreement. Theological agreement is a consequence of the unity that we have in the Spirit, and I think if we you know, when we switch that, heart, that, court, that cart and horse, so to speak, right? Uh, you know, theology is what is drawn behind the, the horse, so to speak. That's the cart. Um, and when we try to flip it, that creates just as much division as anything else, because that's exa- exactly what happened historically. Because the Pentecostal Charismatic put their theology of the Spirit as you know the cart ahead of anything else, it created massive division. So even if we have right theology, It can create division if we don't realize that our right theology is what comes in tow from the work of God in us to to give us sort of, in a philosophical term, ontological unity. The very nature of the church is to be unified in the spirit. Does that make sense, I guess?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that it's a good point um, that our unity as the body of Christ is something that is established by the work of God and not by our Mm -hmm. work, because I do think that we can tend to, and even it was kind of implicit in my question, that unity is only possible whenever we agree on certain concepts and positions. Mm -hmm. And like you said, to a certain degree, that is true. Uh, We can't um, have fellowship with people who are um, preaching or believing in heresy, things that are core to salvation you know, so are those that that list that would be in the Apostles' Creed. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, but even beyond that, mm-hmm. uh, that, yeah, yeah, there's, there's an ontological unity created by God that we must recognize and then yeah. seek. seek yeah. The well, and see the outworking manifestation this is, of that.
1: Yeah, and that's why this is so important because, see, the thing is, we think we can create unity by simply creating agreement. This is where we get into the air of a lot of uh, ecumenical type concepts. Well, you know, if we can just come, to, if we can just agree on these new, on these theological terms, somehow that will create unity. But that's not what unity isn't created by the church, unity is a manifestation of the work of God in us. So we can't resolve the conflicts, especially for those that are teaching heretical doctrines. And I'm not, I don't mean the Pentecostal charismatic at this point, I'm talking about the kind of Pauline people that you know you were referencing there, saying like, who deny, like say, the deity of Christ or something like that. So let's take mm-hmm. that where, see, they don't have unity to begin with. So there's nothing I can do to create, I can do to create unity. I can't, through a system of theology, invent a structure that will provide unity. Unity is a gift from God alone. And only yeah. when I have that gift can I then live out that unity through theological understanding and through practices and stuff. So that either reinforces it or undermines it, but we can't create it. And I think that's where, you know, some in the reform camp, I'm picking on everybody today, some in the reform camp, I think over overestimate the value of our theology and thinking that it is the power that unites us, but it's not. It's the Holy Spirit who's the power who unites us. Mm. Yeah.
0: That's good. That's good. It makes a lot of sense. So in part two of the book, you work out the uh, biblical case and arguments for this unity in the Spirit, uh, or this finding unity through baptism in the Spirit. Uh, a lot of chapters here in this section that work this out, but uh, I thought uh, it'd be uh, beneficial to kind of hear the way that this argument works out. So if we just talk through some of them, uh, you talk about the yeah, sufficiency absolutely. of Christ. And so how does mm-hmm. that work into this?
1: Yeah, so this is where, you know, in addition to sort of uh, – unpacking or exegeting some of the key passages, like two A- Acts 2, 8, 9, 10, and 19, that are the core of the Pentecostal charismatic traditional argument, um, I, I try to pick up some of the theological themes of Scripture uh, that are, that play into the interpretation of these key passages. And the sufic- sufficiency of Christ is one of those that really is important. Because Paul's entire you know corpus of theology is that Christ alone is sufficient for all things. So if Christ isn't sufficient, then you know then we don't have the hope of the coming of the coming age, of the resurrection, that we can live and walk in unity. So the sufficiency of Christ through his through his work alone, through his death and resurrection, is able to accomplish all that God has planned for his people. I mean, that's a key theme of Paul. So the problem I had, uh, you know, when, when I, you know, years ago as I started to look into the Pentecostal thing, as I started to take these classes with at Oral Roberts University, is that, like, ultimately what seems at stake here is, is Christ enough? Is Christ sufficient? And the answer, when you take this historic doctrine of a second work of grace that's necessary it's almost like it's the work of Christ is incomplete until you receive this second thing. Mm-hmm. So Christ is not sufficient. Now, I know that nobody in word would say, oh, well, of course Christ is sufficient. Everyone would say that. But if you have a theology that undermines that belief or that, that claim that Christ is sufficient, then you have to either reject the claim that Christ is sufficient or change your theology. So for me, it seems like if we all want to embrace the sufficiency of Christ, then we can't embrace a theology that says that Christ alone is not sufficient, uh, and that we need the Holy Spirit to create this second uh, empowering work, which also really divides the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, from the work of the Son. Uh, you know, the Spirit is doing something that the Son could not accomplish. That seems to create a conflict, and, and I think uh, in the New Testament.
0: Yeah yeah, and that's why I wanted to start with that one, because I think that um, to try to hold the position at the same time that uh, that Christ's work is sufficient, but that a second baptism is necessary for full salvation is internally incoherent.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it, 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 exactly yeah. right. And, and I think it took a lot of years of listening to stuff to figure that out. Like, wait a second, what are we really saying here? You know. Yeah. Um, but I think once you realize, once you see it, then you can't unsee it. And it's like, oh, that's kind of, yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So you also write on uh, the new covenant established uh, mm-hmm. and full gospel, full salvation. Take us through one of those. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so the idea that the, the church in Acts 2, this is the birth of the church, right? Acts 2, we see the church, the Spirit descends upon the 120 in the upper room, and they receive, you know, there's tongues of fire, and they receive, you know, they receive the Holy Spirit who was promised by Christ uh, when he was walking alongside his disciples before his ascension. So this is, becomes the church, right? The, the ecclesia, the, the people gather called out right so uh the, that is important then to understand that if this is when the church is born this is the first of the church that there is something unique happening in this moment in history right so uh this is where i think the the pentecostal charismatic hermeneutic falls apart a little bit because what they'll do is they say, well, clearly, you know, we're, they'll ask a question, well, hey, we're, we're, were the apostles saved before the day of Pentecost? Well, sure, yeah, because they confessed Christ as the Messiah. Well, then they received the Holy Spirit. See, there's a separate Distinction between salvation and the and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but see that's not really true that's not really true it doesn't hold up if we don't understand the idea of a new covenant that God had they were under the under the old covenant, yes, they were saved the same as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be saved under the old covenant, but the old covenant looked forward to the Messiah, the promised fulfillment uh, we look now back. On the the fulfillment that was made 2,000 years ago. So the idea that there's this distinct thing for them as the early apostles is not the relevant point of what's happening. What the relevant point is that the new covenant has been established, and the new covenant is the indwelling. Uh, power of the Holy Spirit who baptizes us into the work of the Messiah, the promised Messiah. So for all of us under the new covenant, there's a unity in that experience. Yes, for the early disciples, there, there was a disconnect there between salvation uh, and the work of the Spirit because they were saved under the hope of a Messiah uh, in the future, right? But, but once the hope is, is, is made real through Christ – there's no longer that divide between the work of the spirit and the work of the Christ and what Christ did, because now we're living in this new covenant time. Yeah. You tracking with that one? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: And then let's see. um, Spirit baptism for the ethnically impure.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an, that that, that, yeah, that's, uh, you know, when you get, uh, so these key passages in Acts, so you get to the stories of uh, the Gentiles, essentially, and the Samaritans. So, you know, Jesus said, hey, the Gospels go from Judea, uh, Samaria, and to the other, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, right? Well, you're talking almost a decade after Christ, and the apostles are still, not understanding, they're still resisting the fact that the gospel was meant for even like, say, the Gentiles or the Samaritans. so you have these stories that don't look good on the, the apostles, like it paints them in a pretty bad light. No. But it's important uh, because what they are discovering is what Christ really. He was serious about this idea that the gospel that was given ultimately to Abraham, that you know God said to Abraham, through you all nations will be blessed. He was serious about that. All nations, all peoples, regardless of their ethnic origins. It wasn't just for the ancestors biologically of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob just for the nation national people who identified as israel is for all peoples and so what you have uh in in these uh other uh passages and acts so you take Peter, or, you know, uh, Peter going to uh, the house of Cornelius, for example. You know, he's a Gentile, ethnically impure in the sense that he's not from Israel, right? And he goes and he shares this message, and all of a sudden the, the Spirit descends on these people, and they start speaking in tongues. And he said, hey, this happened just like it did for us on the day of Pentecost. Well, why did God withhold the giving of the Spirit uh, to, until Peter was there? they had wanted salvation. You could argue even maybe that they were saved before that. It really doesn't matter because that's not the point of the passage. The point is that Peter, being apostle, saw that the same gift of the Spirit was given to these Gentiles, these people who were unclean, right? Because he has that vision of all the unclean animals right before this that he's not allowed to eat. Now sudden, God said, hey, take and eat. He's like, whoa, wait a second. These are unclean. No, they're not unclean because they're they're all unclean. Washed in the blood of Christ. They're all submersed into the death and life of Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So the apostles then get to see okay, I need to start taking seriously what Jesus said that the gospel is for all those starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Now I'm in the uttermost parts of the world. I better, a decade later, he's like, oh, I finally get it. So the Pentecostal Charismatic takes this experience of, like, say, the house of Cornelius, you know, and or, uh, yeah, and, yeah, and, and the coming of the Gentiles. say, Oh, see, there's this second thing. It's always by tongues, but that's not the point of the passage. The point is that they're they're one people. They're one church. Okay, that's the point of that passage, and why there's a a time lapse, if you will, between you know their confession of faith and say the coming of the Spirit. Even if they're not meant to be separated. In any temporal sense, uh, the only reason there might be some separation there is because, again, God had a point to make, and the, and the Jews, the apostles as Jews, were not understanding the point until they could see it for themselves. Much like Thomas doubted Jesus' resurrection and he could touch the you know the 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 bruises on his and his hands and his side. Peter and the apostles were doubting that the gospel, the the fullness of salvation, was for the world until they could see it for themselves. And then once they did, they realized hey, these people are our people. We're one church. There's a unity of who we are. It's not we received the Spirit and they haven't, and there's two classes of Christians again based on uh, ethnic differences. Yeah.
0: It's so uh, enlightening or uh, edifying, where you read the book of Acts with an eye for the wide diversity of people that Luke goes Mm -hmm. at length to showing us, come to Christ, Um, you know, people from different cultures, different ethnicities, Mm -hmm. men and women, rich and poor, I mean, just all over the spectrum. That, like, just every single chapter in Acts, Luke is showing us someone else who mm-hmm. is coming to Christ, being saved, filled with the Holy spirit. And mm-hmm. essentially what you're pointing out here is that we're reading the story of even the Jewish apostles themselves coming to see this, that, that God is the God of all peoples. He wants to be the Lord of all nations and ethnicities. Um, and that the gospel mm-hmm. is for all nations and ethnicities and cultures. And I think that it's so powerful to see that to work out when, you know, unfortunately, because we still have fallen flesh, no matter how, um, no matter how equal and racially united our culture becomes, because of our fallen flesh, we can still hold ethnic prejudices yeah. or even prejudices against other cultures. You know, even mm-hmm. if it doesn't have as much to do with uh, ethnicity, um, even though all those things are always somewhat tied together. <laughs>
1: Well, if so that prejudice was good enough for the apostles, it's good enough for us, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he says sarcastically. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, they, they had that too. They, they really yeah. could not overcome that. And so the fact that we're yeah. having struggles overcoming it shouldn't be a surprise. That's why we need the truth of what we're talking about here, uh, of yeah. what the Spirit does to unite us as one people.
0: Yeah, exactly. Sorry I to interrupt. That I just, you know, that's that's no, an exciting yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and I think that this point is so powerful to overcome that uh, for believers to look in their heart and examine: is there some cultural or ethnic prejudice inside of me? And then see this truth of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. working across all those uh, boundaries and, and differences that we have, and then enables us to repent and you know have the have the Spirit sanctifies in, in that sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that that point is so powerful. And once again, something else that if we don't emphasize and talk about the work of the Spirit in salvation for us non-Pentecostals, uh, it's something yeah. else that we miss, this this unity.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So uh, coming to the end of our time here, you know, we've talked about a lot and there, there's a lot more from the book that we could talk about, but Look, guys, you're going to have to get the book. If you want to hear more, we're not going to go through every yeah. single chapter. Uh, just if, if there's one last thing that you want to leave our listeners with, uh, one takeaway that you want them to have mm-hmm. from this episode, this conversation, what would that be?
1: Yeah, you know, here's what I'll emphasize at the end because I know I get this. This comes across a lot. I get this on comments on uh, reviews about the book, or other things that people have done, uh, invariably somebody of a Pentecostal charismatic background comes on and saying that I'm denying their experience or their encounter with the with God. And I address this in the book, but I just want to say that look, I understand that all of us have many experiences and post conversions encounters with God. I'm not denying that the Holy Spirit might have done something amazing in your life post-conversion. Matter of fact, I hope he has. Uh, I think that the the scripture is clear that we need to have many Post-conversions, encounters with our God who gives us power and strength, encouragement, hope, joy, all these things. And I hope they're very dynamic and vivid and transformational in us. What I'm I'm arguing in the book is not against the fact that you had a genuine experience with God. What I'm saying is let's make sure we, we allow the scripture to interpret what that experience was and let let the scripture tell us what it means to have that experience don't let your experience drive the cart of meaning Let scripture drive that cart of meaning and so for those that have had these post-conversion vivid encounters i'm not going to debate those things you know like this that's not the point of this at least um what i would say is that Yes, embrace whatever encounter you had, but make sure as you're talking about that encounter that you are talking about in a way that not only edifies those who haven't had the same experience, but also reinforces the unity we have through the one baptism of the Holy Spirit that brings us to the cross of Christ and and saves us all. Because that's the source of our unity, regardless of how different our post-conversion encounters with Christ are and the, what the work of the Holy Spirit does in each of our lives. We still have that core unity. So if you can, you know, emphasize that core of unity uh, w- and talk about your experience in a way that uh, cre- that reinforces the unity given by the Spirit, then have at it. Uh, th- that's, I think, what I would want to encourage people to think about in terms of the framing of their own experiences.
0: Yeah, great. Well, once again, the book that we've been talking about today is... Joe's new book titled One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism, Spirit Baptism, and Christian Unity. If you guys are interested in picking up a copy of the book, I'll have a link in the show notes below. So just uh, go down to the description on YouTube or podcast, wherever you're listening, click on the link to show notes, and you can pick up a copy of the book there. Uh, I'll also have Joe's uh, social media uh, link there if you want to be able to connect with him and follow uh, the work that he's doing. Um, but, Joe, I just want to thank you for coming on the show today, uh, for making the time for this conversation. I enjoyed it. We got a lot out of it, and I'm sure that our listeners did as well.
1: Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate that uh, we get this together over the busy holidays. And uh, blessings to you, brother, and have a happy new year. You too.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast please share it with others post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. to catch up the latest from me you can go to my website aaronchamp.com while you're there subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime i share new content you can also follow me on facebook instagram and twitter at aaron m Champ. thanks again and i'll see you next time until then hold fast to the end